0: You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology. This call was recorded at 12 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, November 6th.
1: Dr. Minna, do you have any opening remarks? Um, well, I, I just want to say, well, hopefully, that, hopefully the election is now coming to a close. Um, we'll see. But I do think... I've talked a lot over the months, and some of you have been on this, you know, every week for months, and some not. Um, uh, I th- I hope that this is now becoming, you know, this can be an inflection point where we can actually start creating creating policy around around how to actually tackle this virus in an, in a truly meaningful way. Um, I think that the election has probably distracted um, from it in a, in a pretty serious way for months now, and um, you know, this year, this week we passed 100,000 cases in a day that were detected. Um, this virus is increasing uh, at a pace of of adding 50% new cases every single uh, every two weeks right now. So it's it's just accelerating, um, despite all we all of the research that has been done on it over the last uh, since March or February, we have yet to. Contain it, and and really, we're going the opposite direction. And um, I'll probably, I'm sure, people will ask about it, or I'll talk about it a bit more um, as uh, in this hour. But um, but we have options, and I think I think we're getting to a point where the country believes uh, that we that the only options are to close down, and that's leading to a, a incredible strife and and fear uh, and uh, and anxiety across the country. Um, the the only reason why that is being discussed so broadly is because we continue to to not put together a very clear strategy and uh and i think that there are there are there are simple strategies that could be explored that are much less economically devastating uh than than shutdowns and i've talked a lot about rapid testing being one of those strategies it's a Fairly straightforward strategy that needs some uh, external parts, like messaging and marketing and things like that, and public health buy-in um, and and public and really putting the public back in public health. Um, but I, I I hope that people are 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 considering covering. That there are other avenues to control a virus and to mitigate spread. And now that the election, you know, I think with with turnover in, in leadership or maybe the same leadership, whichever direction it goes, hopefully people can focus more and, and actually recognize that there are just so many options besides just total economic shutdown or herd immunity or natural derived herd immunity. There's a lot of space in between to to keep people safe. And uh, and hopefully we'll cover some of those in this. So I'll just I'll just say that, and um, and I'll happy to take questions.
0: Uh, so let's get started. Uh, first question.
1: Hi,
2: um, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, I think this is related a bit to what you were talking about earlier. Um, one thing I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around is governors or or other leaders at this point. Um, they're stressing these personal choices and individual behavior. Um, as a way to slow the spread and and not really instituting any new policy um, or anything like that. And I guess one argument that they're making is that a lot of the spread apparently that they're seeing in their states is at family gatherings or sort of in private settings. And um, so like, I guess arguably that's something that like a policy around like uh, business restrictions wouldn't touch. But I guess I'm, so I'm wondering how you kind of react to that argument and, and maybe by extension like why would actually policy changes or new strategies have an impact on wherever transmission is occurring even if it's in private?
1: Well, transmission, uh, this is one of the hardest pieces of dealing with an acute virus like this that transmits through respiratory transmission. Uh, It impacts, it, it can transmit in people's homes, it can transmit Know very well when people get together with their loved ones, but we cannot shut down society and stop people from, uh, we can't treat, treat everyone like they're positive every day and ask people just not to gather for the indefinite future. This virus, I think there's a lot of people in the United States who are recognizing that the suggestions that they need to, to just not gather, um, the, 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 like where is, the, where is the light at the end of that tunnel? We can't just pause society, pause our lives, pause everything um, as a result. Uh, We could for a little while, and that was the intention back in March and April. Sorry. uh, That was the intention back in in March and April uh, to shut things down and to say, okay, this is going to lead to a a sort of uh, uh, this is going to be a short duration, complete shutdown in parts of the country to get things under control. And had we acted appropriately after that as a country to actually try to keep things under control, uh, I think people would be more encouraged about what's ahead. But, But I don't think that many people in this country have any interest in saying, you know, in saying, I'm just not, I'm blanket not going to get together with my family for Thanksgiving. Most people are not, or many, many people are not willing to do that. And that's because there's not a clear end in sight. Does that mean they're not getting together for Christmas as well? And you know, is it every moment that you can't get together, or is it just certain times? And this is one of the reasons why I think you know, one of the best things we could possibly do is empower people to know if they are more or less likely at risk of transmitting this virus to their family members so that they can make educated decisions. They can still go and do what it is that they're going to do either way. But maybe they can be more discerning and choose not to if in the in the more rare event that they actually are positive, then they don't go to Thanksgiving, for example. And that's where the getting people rapid rapid tests that, that they can use in their home really is directly addressing this particular question. Um, I think we it's kind of naive. I mean it's beyond naive to say as public health people, just don't get together with people. Um, you know, I have been uh, myself very concerned to get together with my family, uh, but I still have a family that I love and I wanna see, and this has been a long year, and so I have uh, just spent uh, a week with, uh, with many of them. Uh, in, in our case, I had, uh, I had rapid tests to take every day, and that made me feel much better about being around older individuals in my family, for example. Um, while still practicing other things like social distancing and wearing masks when needed, uh, but but it it is empowering to people to actually know their status and and to not give them any information about their status to not empower them to really know what it is, what their status is at any moment. Then it's it's an extremely difficult ask to just ask people to not see their families. That is, you know, for for an invisible virus, it's really. Um, naive of the public health community to just blanket ask that without trying to give some something for people to hold on to something for people to empower their choices with um, besides just taking our our words for it and I, I don't know if that completely answers the question but I'll stop no, there
2: yeah, no that that was helpful I guess and if I can just you know you mentioned in your opening that there's this sort of false binary between lockdown or not and there are other avenues. And uh, you mentioned testing as one of the those other avenues, but like what are um, some, like, some of those other avenues that that uh,
1: that exists before a lockdown type situation? Well, I think it's to have, um, we can strategize around how we use the resources we do have. We can strategize around how much we know about the virus. We've been looking at so much of this as sort of black and white, you're either locked down or you're not. Um, we're either just letting the virus get completely out of control or we're trying to let it get out of control and then suppress it you know, with, with, with lockdowns. Um, some of the other things, I, I actually don't think we have a ton of choices, which is why for months I've been harping about rapid antigen tests um, and increasing testing because at the end of the day, the way that you stop an outbreak like this is to know your status. It's the same thing we did with HIV. Um, if people know their status, then they can make more informed choices. Even if they're still going to go to Thanksgiving dinner, for example, I wouldn't recommend it for somebody who's positive to go to Thanksgiving dinner and I hope that people will not. But if they do, you know, maybe some of these very ardent sort of anti or people who think that this virus is a hoax, maybe if they are positive and they know that they're going to dinner, they will, uh, or they know that they're positive and they're going to dinner, they will act a little bit different. They'll behave a little bit different. Maybe they won't give their grandma a hug you know, whatever it might be um, to stop spread. And I think, we, I think it's all about empowering people to know that, 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 that they're in a position where they could potentially give somebody else an infection that could kill them. That is an extremely powerful piece of information that should be a motivator for many, many people. Um, but short of having a good understanding of what your exact sort of infectious status is at the moment, some of the other pieces also center a bit around sort of more public health testing and surveillance. If you know, for example, that you, if you run a nursing home and you know that there's um, not been any community prevalence of this virus uh, for two months in your community, maybe you can become a little bit more relaxed about trying to figure out how to creatively get uh, your, your residents in the nursing home together with their loved ones. But if there's massive outbreaks happening like we're seeing right now, Maybe then, for shorter periods of time, you say, "Okay, we, we, you know, we adapt and we really change things." But we do it with strategy. We haven't had a lot of strategy across the country to do that. And then finally, the other piece is um, we have a lot. Uh, essentially, by by just sort of not creating real centralized strategy, this is a virus that just truly does not care about borders. It doesn't care about elections. It doesn't care about politics. It it's not even alive. It's a, a virus is like a little robot that hijacks people's cells, it doesn't care about any of this stuff. It will just spread. And you know. so the reason I say that is because the, any decisions that we're making as policymakers uh, or programs that we're putting in front of policymakers, they need to be adopted, or at least something that is adoptable by everyone. Uh, this virus will cross state, state lines, they'll cross county lines. So if we're doing things in a fragmented way, it's just never going to work. And that's what we've seen in the US thus far. Thanks very much, appreciate it.
2: Next question.
3: Uh, Hey, Michael. Um, You know, everybody's going to ask the questions I want to ask, so I'm going to go somewhere a little different. Um, So what's up with the FDA? They've kind of gone wild. I wanted to know know, what you think is going on there and when they might um, get back to normal. I follow biotech quite a bit, and I'm not going to bore you with the details. But I could cite many examples of companies that had a pathway worked out on drug approval, and then suddenly, at the last moment, the FDA comes up with a completely different angle that derails the whole thing. And then, if you just again just look at the uh, the Biogen right situation with Aducanumab, um, the FDA just came out with this statement that just goes against all statistical analysis. So. They just seem to be kind of crazy, and I know you have interaction with them. So what's going on there, and when uh, when might they get back to normal?
1: Um, I mean, I can't speak for them. I, I would say that I, I do talk to the in vitro diagnostics team uh, at the FDA, and uh, my best guess or you know that I can't really speak intelligibly about your question too much, but but I can say that they are under immense pressure at the moment and they are an agency that is uh, like the CDC in the middle of enormous political strife that is truly at the, you know, what is at stake is a difference between you know politics and anti-science uh, decision making, versus robust scientific decision-making. And how do you, how do you start to reconcile that when, when the people above you, I mean, the FDA essentially falls under uh, the current White House. How do you, how do you push things in a, and have any sort of reasonable sort of decision-making process within the FDA when, when the person who can fire you um, is sitting there saying that this virus is a hoax and that you know we don't need to act on it. In fact, we want to do the opposite and, and, uh, and completely not act on it. And that's that's his message. I mean, there's no secret about that. Um, I, I just can't imagine what it's like to be. I'm really glad I never decided to work at the CDC uh, or the FDA because it just seems like a nightmare at the moment. Um, so of course they can't get anything done, and the, it seems to the to the general public that they're going, uh, that that they're not making reasoned decisions. Because um, uh, I, I think they're getting pulled in in completely opposing directions. One is, you know, to really be to really work appropriately and and uh, do the job of the FDA. You need to be discerning. You need to be scientific. You need to be meticulous and that is all those words are not even in in a i mean there are nothing that anyone would apply to the current white house and so i I just think that that that's at
3: the heart of it okay and just real quick another one then i'll hop back into queue um so uh again a different maybe a little bit of an abstract question but i think it's really important Um, You know, in the stock market, psychology is about 90% of the game, so I pay real close attention to it. And uh, a big part of that is crowd psychology, right? So I'm just curious, like obesity kills 2.8 million people a year, and COVID's at 1.2. In the U.S., the numbers are 360K versus 235K. So why do you think the group psychology has latched on to COVID when there's a whole other epidemic that's much more serious that does like wouldn't it have been better to latch on to the obesity epidemic and by the way Dunkin Donuts is up 35% this year versus about 2% for the S&P so that's uh, kind of interesting and relevant anyway what's your take on that kind of the the mass hysteria uh, developing around one but not the other seems a little bit misplaced.
1: Uh, This is this is an issue um that comes up again and again and again uh, in public health. Uh, we say it a lot in public health. That, you know, we had uh, Ebola, for example, which killed, you know, relatively very very few people compared to this or compared to obesity, but it makes the headlines. Meanwhile, we have pneumococcal pneumonia, uh, which is killing millions uh, of children a year uh, that nobody cares about. Um, These things that become ubiquitous in life, we just, we're we're seeing it already with COVID. People cannot retain, um, unless it's something that you do as your profession or something that you do, that you are very, very passionate about, anything that we deal with on a daily basis is necessarily going to become, you're going to become desensitized to it. Obesity, we have I mean, the the complexities in obesity are are far greater than the complexities of how to deal with an infectious disease like this. Um, But it's so intertwined with our lifestyle, with our culture, um, you know, with our socioeconomic status and our geography, you know, how to deal with that. There are people, uh, you know, and and frankly, global warming is no different than this, too. Um, There are people who advocate and who do the science for and and uh, for, for trying to tackle all of these issues. But at the end of the day, if it takes effort and it's something that's ubiquitous and would change would take real change at a social level, um, it is something that people generally lose interest in very, very quickly because people get busy. They have their lives to live. Um, and COVID is no different in this case. Uh, you're, you're using COVID versus obesity right now to say that people are really rallying around covid and not uh not obesity uh, as something that can be tackled and i think the real difference here is that this is still an acute infection there is still hope that we can figure this out there is fear about it because it's a new addition to the things that kill us uh, but let it go for another year and people are going to not care um uh, we're already seeing that happen, unfortunately, and you know it's it's hard to say exactly um, if if there are if I think that the that the complexities I'm not a s- psychologist, but I do think that there are, that there are real intertwining things where you see a lot of overlap between the populations that um, that that have a lot of these other health problems and um, populations that just don't really care about this virus. Um, you know, I'm sure that there's complexities that there that can be un, unraveled over over years in, in psychology PhDs um, and trying to understand groupthink and, and things along those lines. Um, I really don't, I, I can't say much more than, uh, but then this, this is an issue in public health that is sort of age old.
3: Okay, thank you. Uh,
0: Dr. Bennett, we have a lot of questions, so I'm gonna ask you to maybe make your answers a little bit shorter, uh, so we can hopefully get through everybody.
1: Hi, uh, this is related to a recent study from the medical school in Boston Children's that found the case rate among detainees at ICE facilities was on average more than 13 times the rate of case rates among uh, the US general population. So um, my question is, we do mass testing of asymptomatic individuals at places like universities and nursing homes. Should there be the same kind of testing in ICE detention facilities, even if there may not be the ability or resources to respond to those tests as per CDC guidance, why or why not? Absolutely, I mean, unless we're wanting to give people who who are detained by ICE death sentences just because of being detained, we should absolutely be doing everything we can to protect them. Uh, we've seen this going on since the beginning of this pandemic, where where we haven't been protecting prisons appropriately. We haven't been detect, uh, protecting uh, detainees appropriately. This is, you know, these people are are become in the in the custody, if you will, of of the federal government, and we absolutely should be doing everything we can to keep them safe. They're whatever crime people might have committed, or or. You know, just being in the U.S. as undocumented is not a, a is not a reason to put them in physical harm's way, um, and we need to we need to be caring for people um, in in all of these settings. Um, unfortunately, again, uh, I mean th- this virus again doesn't care, uh, and it isn't going to not infect people because they're in a an ICE detention facility, and it's going to. Uh, in fact, spread much more readily. These are, these are places where people are probably um, close together. They're, they're at-risk populations uh, and um, not providing uh, a means to stop spread in those locations is a, is a, a national travesty. It's a stain on, on, our, on our country, uh, I, I think. I mean, not, it's just astounding. Um, this has come up before in the past with influenza vaccines, for example, should we be providing influenza vaccines to de- detainees um, in years past? And, and in general, in the previous years, we've decided uh, as a nation not to. And, and it's just, it's, it's terrible. Uh, I think we, we absolutely should be doing everything we can to stop spread. And, and, and testing on a frequent basis is one of the best ways, especially in a place like that. To prevent spread and, and stop outbreaks and and dealing with the with with stopping spread in those locations should be one of our top priorities.
0: Thank you. Uh, next question.
1: Hi, thanks for for doing this. Uh, you mentioned at the top. You said you you hope this is an inflection point in this election. Sort of, you know, get some policy process moving. Is this something that the current administration can do in the next few months or does leadership have to come from the states at this point? And then what are the consequences if, you know, nothing happens until mid-January? So this is something that the current administration can absolutely do. Um, and I know that there are people in the administration who want to do things, um, who want to actually create strategy um, I have received calls in the last few days um, from people high up in the administration who are looking for advice on how best to use uh, rapid testing, uh, for example, to keep nursing homes safe. So I know that there are people in the administration who absolutely want to do um, good by the United States population and want to help uh, combat this virus in with strategy and with science. Um, I'm hoping that now that the election is over, uh, that we can see uh, that you know that that you know, regardless of who wins, that people aren't going to be trying to get votes and making decisions based purely on that. And so maybe there will be more willingness. Um, but even beyond just the the, the White House, uh, we could we have a lot of options. Uh, we need to be putting funding uh, uh, into into infrastructure and strategies to combat this one of the most important things in my opinion now we've put funding into vaccines and that's that there's been a lot of funding going into that we need to get funding into the Heroes Act to uh, essentially build up our capacity to, to know who's infected and and control the virus through uh, in part with with testing and ideally with frequent testing uh, in order to get people to know when they're infected and so by, by appropriating the funds, uh, in things like the Heroes Act, we can actually, you know, we can start acting now. There's no reason why the administration has to change to do that. Um, and, and this is something, you know, it, so much of this always comes down to funds. And this is just a small fraction of the cost that it would take uh, to, to actually get the type of testing available in this country so that, uh, so that we could actually achieve herd effects and get outbreaks to become suppressed at a national level would take extremely small um, amounts of dollars compared to what this virus has costed us uh, over the last uh, six or seven months. Um, And there's just no reason why we are not aggressively doing this. Um, If we had $10 billion appropriated towards testing uh, and towards the manufacturing and deployment of rapid tests, for example, that would be enough money, just $10 billion, which maybe to the average person sounds like a lot, but it's a drop in the bucket for our, for our federal response. Um, I believe that we can actually get this virus uh, and the outbreaks that are happening across the country under control. The science adds up, the math adds up. So we don't have to wait until an administration either remains or changes. We can, we can make changes that, that can be greatly effective. Uh, tomorrow if we if we had the will But now what if this funding doesn't come through uh, immediately right you know you're talking about ten million dollars but if there's no real legislative will to get this money through for another three four months is the virus just gonna spread too much to be able to control it at that point at the moment, we have painted ourselves into a corner. I'm not going to lie. Um, we have very, very few options at the moment. These tests aren't going to become widely available tomorrow. They just can't. Um, I think they can be uh, in a month from now, for example, if we were to start acting aggressively today. And you know, does it have to be the federal government? I think it should be. But could it be a combination of Mark Zuckerberg, Tim Cook, and Jeff Bezos? Sure. Um, $10 billion is not a lot. You could do it with, get, get $3 billion and that will get us three months worth of tests or four months worth of tests. So it doesn't need to be a lot. Um, but you know, at this very moment, we're seeing exponential growth of this virus. This is expected. This was completely predictable. We have said it. I've been screaming it for months. My colleagues have been screaming it for months. And now we actually don't have a lot of options, and this is this is what you know. In the in the you know, we don't have a lot of options for tomorrow. We could have a lot of options to control this and allow us to be more safe when we go go home for Christmas, or go to our families for Christmas, um, but but not for Thanksgiving. And uh, and and this is the the tragedy of this virus, and this is the tragedy of letting it get out of hand. Um, if we let it get out of hand, our our options dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. Um, every day, um, you know, we, we are just going to have pretty soon no options but to completely shut down or choose to just let the virus run unabated in the in the community and kill another 200 or 300,000 people. Um, you know, and, th- and this is why I, I'm, I'm saddened by this every day because we have had tools at our disposal for months now and we just never have used them yet. But there's no time like the present to start if we're if we're not going to have them tomorrow, but we could have them on December tenth, we don't want to be looking back and saying, "Man, I wish we started on November sixth to build these, because then we would have we would have had them by now." I don't want to see us in the middle of December having the same conversation about whether people can go home for Christmas. Um, it's just it's just becoming tragic and more tragic every day. Thanks. Uh, next question. Dr. Minna, thank you for doing this. First of all, this is a, a bit of a niche question, but there were, you know, on one of your calls a couple months ago, you said that the idea of having fans, even partial crowds, at sporting events outdoors would be potentially a disaster. And obviously, college football games have had crowds like that for months now. I'm, I'm curious as we look forward to indoor sports, uh, college basketball, the NBA, potentially having limited capacity crowds. Do you think that that's something at this point that can be done safely with any sort of protocols, or are we certainly, or are we just at a point, kind of with the the spread of the virus in communities across the country, that that's something that should not be happening? Well, yeah. So a few months ago, when I said it could be disastrous, I, I think I was also saying that it's a it's a slippery slope if you have people uh, gathering, for example, in sports stadiums. Uh, even if there's distance apart, it ends up becoming a slippery slope of saying, "Well, okay, we can, you know, you're, we can start getting getting larger and larger crowds," and that's exactly what we've seen: is that slippery slope happen. And now these are these are places where the virus can spread. Um, outdoors is is definitely better than indoors. As we're moving indoors, it's the same story with sports as it is with work and everything else. Uh, it really depends on what precautions we're able to take. Uh, before people uh, gather. We've seen pretty tremendous benefit uh, from frequent testing on college campuses, on universities across the country, and at the White House. Um, we've seen that it is possible to greatly reduce odds of major outbreaks happening at these types of events. Um, and and I, I think until we have really good ways to, to really reduce the odds of major outbreaks happening, we're, we're in we're stuck in in, in at, a, at a at a at a fork in the road where we either say uh, it's okay to have big outbreaks happen at sporting events and we've chosen the route of of natural immunity uh, to to be developed and and, and unfortunate deaths uh, across the country or we are trying to figure out how best to keep people safe when they go into these sporting events or when they go to work or go to a restaurant or whatever it might be um, and that's where I think you know, really focusing on reducing spread as much as possible, masks and distancing, you know, spacing things out are crucial. But what is as crucial as those is, uh, is trying to stop infected people from entering into those stadiums and into those in, uh, indoor uh, facilities. And that's, uh, again, it, it comes back to knowledge. If we don't know, this is a silent virus. That's why I harp so much on testing it is an invisible virus, it's silent, it spreads asymptomatically, presymptomatically, and if we're not able to detect it, then we just don't know who's walking in there and what their status is. And that's why I think, again, it always comes back to testing for me, along with these other public health mitigation strategies, because there's just no other way to, to stop it from spreading with a, with a virus that is, that is circulating widely in a community.
0: Uh, next question.
4: Perfect. Thank you so much uh, again, Michael, for doing this. Um, just what, you've touched on this, but I wanted to ask, look, looking at sort of what you know, of course, the presidential election is is not a done deal by any means. Um, uh, but decided to look today at what a Biden response might look like, um, and and localizing as much as we can, what what you know, impact it might have here in Massachusetts. Just wondering, you know, uh, he's he's put out some pretty detailed plans on what a national response would look like under a Biden administration. If you might be able to um, to weigh in on that and what you think, how things might change.
1: Well, I I think I think things would change. You know, there's a lot of ways to potentially create policy around an infectious disease like this in terms of. Um, I mean, there's so many different angles. I think the biggest thing that will change with a Biden administration. Is bringing scientific rigor and uh, and and uh, bringing strategy uh, into into this the fight against uh, against this virus and frankly the fight to keep our economy alive and, and running. Um, I, I I do believe that a Biden administration will treat this in a in a wholly different way and with a very very different approach and one that will focus. Uh, on on using the advice of experts, um, bringing multiple parties to the table, whether that's experts, economists, local health leaders um, who who understand the, the 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 feelings of their constituents in their in their localities, I I believe that that we will see a, we'll see a, a rational response to the virus start to start to appear. And that's the biggest thing for me is it's, you know, without going into the details of everything that he is wanting to put uh, forward, I think the biggest thing is, is that, that, that that administration, if it were to, to um, come about, would actually pay attention to, to the science, would pay attention to um, uh, and strategize around what are the best ways to utilize the resources we do have, what are the resources we need to build um, and what what is the what do we know about viruses like this? There's a reason why the federal government and the NIH have funded infectious disease research for decades. Um, and it's not so that we could throw out all of that research when we actually need it. And I think that we will see um, something uh, I, I think that we'll see strategy and and, and science and rational behavior come back to uh to the federal government.
0: Thank you. Okay uh next question. Yeah hi thanks for taking my question. Um can you hear me? Yep. Great. Um I'm wondering if you could focus on Uh, What we ideally want to see for nursing homes in terms of testing, I've been talking to a nursing home that's frustrated because they just had the situation this week of several people testing negative on the rapid machines that they were issued by HHS and then testing positive with PCR. Now they're just starting to receive the paper strip tests. Um, I think they just got them this week. And so they're hoping. Oh, maybe those are more accurate than the machines we got from HHS. But I don't know if that's the that's the right way to think about it. Or, you know, what else we expect to protect these nursing homes? They feel like they don't have anything that's good enough to protect
1: their residents. Sure. Um, uh, well, let me let me answer that in one second. I wanted to. I was just th- thinking about the last question that was asked. I promise I'll come right back to this one. Um, I want to. I, I want to just say one other thing that I do believe is that I, I think that Biden, unlike Trump, really gets this idea that we can both control this virus and reopen the economy, and and I think that that's one of the major things that like these don't have to be opposing forces. And the rhetoric that has come from the White House for all this time has made those appear to to the public as opposing forces. They are not, and there are ways. That we can control it and reopen the economy simultaneously, um, and focus on both of those, because that's really what we need to do as a country. And I, I think that that's one of the biggest pieces that Biden will bring to this. He doesn't. I don't think that he'll see things in this completely black and white way that the Trump administration has really dealt with almost everything. Um, so I just wanted to to, to say that. Um, uh, on the nursing uh, nursing home front this has been uh, i think uh, it, it all kind of wraps up together actually i, I think the nursing homes um, they are they are medical types of facilities but they generally have no expertise in infectious disease control we saw that at the beginning of of this pandemic that truly that there was almost no sense in infection control whatsoever in many nursing homes They just didn't they didn't know what it was, They, but they they reached out, certainly, to try to get help. And I think they've learned a lot. Um, the reason I bring it up is because they are in a position of just trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And so far, tests have just kind of been thrown at them with, with almost no direction, no instruction, no policy, no strategy of how to use them appropriately. I keep using the word strategy because that's what I keep thinking of this as a war, and whether it's in a nursing home or at the public at large, you can't fight a war without strategy. You will never win; um, you'll go backwards. and And we need to be providing nursing homes with with policies. So, are they? You know, there's there's lots of concern that that arises with antigen tests versus PCR testing, as an example. Um, antigen testing. Uh, As one example, antigen testing, by definition, uh, will detect people when they actually have live virus in them. PCR, by definition, will detect the RNA of the virus, whether there's live virus or whether somebody is um, over the virus. So let's say you have a patient in your uh, nursing home who gets a rapid antigen test as part of a screening program, shows up negative, but the same day gets a, 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 a PCR test. And it shows up positive. If I didn't know anything else, I would be extremely concerned about that issue and say, This is terrible. The, the antigen test or the machine that the that HHS has provided us isn't doing its job. But if I knew what I was, if if I if I was given more instruction on how to use these tests appropriately and what questions to ask, I would actually ask the question, well. Is that person who's PCR positive actually a danger, or is this remnants of an old infection? For example, because it turns out these these um, rapid tests that the federal government has provided to many nursing homes are extremely good at detecting people when they are infectious and when they're at a, at, at risk of infecting others. But but by definition, they won't tell you if you were infected two weeks ago, um, if you no longer have live virus in you. So I think it becomes a little bit nuanced but the reason that I think we're seeing it's really hard to answer your question uh, without knowing more about it because I I would say that the that the, the nursing homes themselves don't know how to interpret the results and this is a disaster when you when you have tests that are that you're just kind of throwing out to nursing homes and you don't give them the agency to really understand how to interpret it it leads to anxiety and fear and 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 real concern, and that and that concern should be there because if it truly is missing cases, we need to know that. Um, and so, I think that the I don't know which instruments it is that you're referring to, um, whether they are the Abbott ID Now molecular RNA tests or whether it's BD Veritor or Sophia Quidel tests. Those are some of the rapid sort of instrumented tests. But we're starting to see things like the binex Now come out. And be distributed to nursing homes. And at least all of the research so far has shown that these tests really do a very good job at detecting people when they're infectious, up to 100% sensitivity when people are most infectious. And so that should give some, uh, some level of comfort to, uh, to individuals who run these nursing homes, but certainly not giving them that information and saying, hey, these turn positive when somebody's infectious but people could then remain PCR positive for another two or three months. That means for a much, you know, that the ratio of time that you're spent being PCR positive when you're actually a risk to other people is just a small fraction of the whole time that somebody would turn PCR positive. And I don't think that most nursing homes get that. And I think the reason that they don't get that is because we have not as a federal government Giving them, the, giving them the resources to understand that. And I'm not even sure that the federal government fully understands that, to be honest.
0: So then I wonder, so in this case, it seems the employees were pre-symptomatic because they've since developed symptoms. And now there are 10 people in the nursing home who are testing positive. Um, But I I wonder, so, you know, in terms of instruction to the nursing home from the feds, as you were talking about, that's kind of lacking. I guess the, the instruction that they are receiving is that they have to test all of their employees every week based on their county positivity rate. So is it are you able to say something like, that is not enough. Ideally, we want nursing homes to test everyone every two days or anything like that. Is, it, is there some sort of ideal guideline here?
1: Oh, absolutely. And and in fact, I was just asked um, by the administration to provide um, this guideline. And we actually just put a, um, put a new paper uh, up online yesterday with those guidelines, essentially, or with suggesting how to best keep uh, use rapid uh, and frequent testing, regardless of the type of test really, but frequent testing um, to keep nursing homes uh, safe. And we found that uh, if you're just doing testing once a week, uh, absolutely, you you will miss people. You will have outbreaks in it, and it is this is a fast moving uh, virus. So that's where this very frequent testing, if you're testing every two days or every three days, you will probably be able to do a really good job at controlling outbreaks uh, if, they, if they enter. Will you necessarily catch every single case? It's, it's extremely difficult to catch every single case, but when it comes to a virus like this, the goal is to stop every outbreak in a nursing home and not necessarily prevent every single case. You just, the only way you can do that is to sort of never have anyone enter. Um, and so if we, can, if we can combat and stop every outbreak through every two day or every three day testing, in these nursing homes, primarily of the staff, uh, because they're the ones going back out into the community, coming back, that can, that can do a tremendous amount of good to keep these places safe. And even though every week sounds like it's, it's a lot, most people in this country are not getting tested every week. Um, unfortunately, this virus just moves too quick. It grows too rapidly, that even testing once a week becomes, for a place like a nursing home, where, things can, where it sort of can get out of control very quickly, Um, even weekly testing is, is too, um, spaced out, um, at a national level, weekly testing would do an amazing job, but that's where we're just trying to sort of slowly bring the whole outbreak down at the, at the country level. But you really don't want to see 30 people get infected in a nursing home, uh, because you're doing weekly testing. Um, it needs to be more frequent if you really want to, if you want to sort of keep outbreaks at bay. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, next question.
4: I'm sorry, can you hear me? Yep. Yep. Okay, great. Uh, I just wanted to go back to uh, Biden for a minute. Um, I wanted to get your comments specifically on, on what he's called out in his COVID-19 testing plan. I mean, he he's said that he wants to ensure that all Americans have access to regular, reliable, and free testing. And then, more specifically, he, he wants to double the number number of drive-through testing sites. Um, he wants to invest in next-generation testing, and and scale up capacity by orders of magnitude. And, and then, I think the other thing is that he's he wants to stand up a, a pandemic testing board, much like Roosevelt's War Production Board, which which he says um, you know could produce and distribute tens of millions of tests uh, nationally. I, I, what what are your or what is your view of, of those although there's not a, a hell of a lot there in terms of uh, specifics and, it, and he doesn't give a dollar figure assigned to these tasks but but what is your, your general view of 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 that plan
1: i think it's it's absolutely what's needed um i think that the most important thing that we could do right now we have to, if we want people to use tests frequently, we have to make them convenient. Drive-throughs are never gonna be convenient, for example. So it's good to keep increasing those for surveillance testing um, as, as a, as you know, just to keep building it up. But, but really what we need is to increase the amount of testing uh, if we wanna use it as a strategy to combat the virus by orders of magnitude, um, like you said, and like Biden's team has said. Um, and so this is one of the absolute most important things that we can do. If we can get uh, 20 million tests or even 10 million tests per day in the United States, that is enough to create herd effects across the whole of the United States. 10 million is not out of reach. 20 million is not out of reach. Um, To get most people in a community to use a test every three, four or five days doesn't actually take a huge amount uh, of, of tests to be produced every day. 10 million or 20 million might sound like a whole lot, but these are small little pieces of paper. We make bags of Doritos at, at that amount, you know, every, every day probably. And so we can absolutely create these little p- paper strips, um, get them out into the whole of the country so that people can wake up, they can brush their teeth, and they can use their, their paper strip test. Uh, it's as simple as putting in or taking out your contact lenses, um, and they can know their status. That is how we combat this virus, to give people knowledge of their status so that they know, do they, do they go to work that day? The other piece is we absolutely need to make it part of a comprehensive program. If we're asking people to not go to work because they are positive, we need to ensure that they have a security note, that they're getting paid, that they're not going to be docked for not going to work. Whether that's the government has to pay the employers to pay their employees or how that program works, uh, it, it needs to be there. Otherwise people will will uh, ignore their results and will continue spreading the virus. But I do think that the inclusion of rapid tests and the massive scale up is something that is well within, we should have done it months ago. This is a simple part of, part of this problem. Uh, and, and it's well within our grasp. And it can get, it can help to get outbreaks under control in weeks. And instead, we've just gone the opposite way. We've let the outbreaks get out of control. But even as out of control as they are at the moment, if we start having half of a community use these rapid tests just every four days, so if you're a participant and you're, you're saying, yes, I volunteer to, to test myself in the morning on, on Mondays and Fridays, and you can get 50% of your community to want to do that and to be willing to do it, you can start to get an, an outbreak like the like outbreaks we're seeing now under control in a month. And these can be, this is through herd effects. It's the same way that vaccines cause herd immunity. Uh, this is herd effects by stopping on or transmission early in the course of people's infections. And so I think that this is part of the, this should be a cornerstone, a true cornerstone of the administration's decision and, and how they, uh, if there's a new administration, how they choose to tackle this virus.
4: Yeah, I mean, quick follow-up. I mean, you, you alluded to this, but in, in terms of, you know, the Trump administration approach, it so far really has put states in charge of of Covid testing. and And do you see you know Biden's approach as more of a federally led uh, approach to the problem?
1: Absolutely. I think um, uh, I, I think that uh, that it will definitely be a, a I mean, from everything I know and and I've talked to talked to people on their team, I think that they are a, they are extremely engaged and, you know, this is priority number one, in my opinion, for them to get this under control and use their platform as a federal government and as a, as a White House to encourage states, to give states the tools that they need. Um, we can't have every state doing this on their own. Again, viruses don't care about state borders. This needs to be coordinated. Uh, and, the, and the only way to coordinate a whole country is to do it at the national level. Um, and, and I do believe that that Biden's team, from everything I can tell, uh, and and this really isn't a political statement. I just think that Biden's team is actually um, interested in tackling this through their through the what will become sort of a, a federal oversight uh, in terms of the national response. Um, and so I, I think that um, they will work with the states, and I can't imagine that they're not going to work with the states. Um, but the biggest thing for many of these states is they don't have the expertise and they don't have the funds. They, we can't have every state trying to create their own manufacturing plant for these tests It just will take a long time. Um, so the federal government, I think, will, needs to produce these tests or, or work much more deeply with the with other companies to produce them at scale, make 20, 20 million of them every single day, uh, which is not very expensive. Again, it sounds like a lot, but it's really not very expensive. Um, and the government needs to pay for it. They need to allocate the funds and they need to make sure that no state is, is having to decide between their purse and keeping their communities safe. We have the money as a government. We're losing much more money. Um, and uh, the return on investment on developing testing infrastructure, especially around these uh, rapid tests is enormous. Um, and so I, I think that, that, that the federal government has to lead and I think that Biden's team is likely going to do that. Thanks, Michael. Uh,
0: next question.
3: Hey, Michael. Uh, just circle back to your rapid test concept, which I think is really interesting and surprising nobody is doing it. Um, so I see you're saying they will cost about a dollar per test. and. They're not, if they're not PCR, what are they? And would they, if you test positive, you're saying there's a second test that you would need to go? What does that mean, like a culture of the virus? Or like, explain all that, please. And like, how many would people get? Like, would just everybody get like five for the month and then maybe not use them? Like, what's your proposal here? What's all that? Well, give me the detail there, please.
1: Yeah, so so essentially, if we could make, we we need to make enough tests so that at the very least, we can get half of communities, fifty percent of people within a community, to to use to have access to a test that they could use, say, every four days. And so, we would pr- produce these tests. My my, what I would like to see is that these tests actually get the manufacturing capacity gets built by the federal government, maybe in conjunction with companies that already exist, or just go and build it. You know, this is simple. This is not complex procedures. These are essentially like small strips of paper with monoclonal antibodies printed on them and chopped up into little pieces. Um, So the federal government could build the capacity, the manufacturing plants, probably for $500 million for a plant that can produce millions of these tests every single day. So 500 million, it's half a billion dollars. It's almost nothing um, in in reality. And so uh, what would then happen is these tests would get freely distributed to states to get distributed to uh, individuals who sign up to participate. We get messaging on board. We get the best marketing teams in the country to want to join in this fight against the virus, to let people know what these tests are all about, how to best use them. We don't just have the CDC's marketing team do this. We have Coca-Cola's marketing team do this to get the information out to people. We work with Google and Verizon and AT&T and Facebook and whoever else to, to make it known what these tests are doing and how to use them. It's like putting in contact lenses, There, there's a, there is a step, but it's really not very difficult at all. Uh, people need to, we need to be careful about how we use them in case somebody, we need to have confirmation of rapid antigen tests. They can, one in every few hundred can turn positive for false reasons. So that means we need confirmation tests. Right now, the only way that the CDC is dealing with this is to say, get a PCR test, but we don't need to do that. You can't have a five minute test have to be confirmed with a four day PCR, that's insane. We need to build, but we, we have much better, simpler solution. You pair these tests together, you have two different tests and they're both, the, they look the exact same more or less, maybe one says confirmation test on it. And if you turn positive on the screening one, the initial one, you, you immediately turn around and you pull out one of the few that came with your package um, that uh, is a confirmatory test. And it's very unlikely to turn falsely positive for the same reason. So right there, you have the whole procedure right in people's hands. You get a household, say 30 tests or 20 tests that will work for that household for a few months. And they're able to keep those tests. Uh, and if, and with every 20 or 30 tests that they get, they have an extra three confirmatory tests that, are, that, are, that look similar, but but have different molecules on them. And that would work. We get 50% of communities to buy in uh so so 20 million tests uh if we could get that out to communities across the united states and people have to use them uh just every 4 or 5 days then 20 million tests covers 100 million people and because you only need 50% of a community to buy into doing this in order to get herd effects then that 100 million people is actually covering 200 million americans with herd effects. So only 20 million tests produced every day immediately gets us up to about 200 million covered. Uh, And beyond that, we could even have people within households have a parent and a kid pool their tests together. So we can really advance the use of these through pooling where you you each take your swab and you put it into the same little tube and, and put that onto the test or stick the test into that tube. And so now we have the entirety of the country covered with herd effects with just 20 million tests a day. We can do that. That is so far, uh, so so within our grasp as a country. And the cost on that, we're talking less than $10 billion a year for that kind of project. And if that means we can save literally $10 trillion uh, a year, if we continue to hemorrhage money like we have been because of this virus, uh, then that is an enormous return on investment. Ten billion is practically nothing. So far, the government has put almost no money into testing uh, as a federal government. We can do this. This is this is. It needs to be coordinated. It needs to be driven by science. It needs to be. We need the manufacturing there, um, but it is not out of reach. There's there's caveats. People will say, well, you know, we, this would go wrong, or some people won't use it. That's okay, even if some people choose not to use the test, the benefit is we're banking on herd effects. So if all of your neighbors or if half of your neighbors are using the test and you wanna go to work even if you're infected, you know, it's not a good choice for you to do that. But over the next few weeks, those outbreaks will subside around you. And then, you know, and these outbreaks can come to a halt in, in a month if we were to actually, if we were to actually put this program into place.
3: That's pretty interesting. Just a couple of real quick follow-ups, if I may. So these tests for antigens, right? That's what yeah, you Yeah, these, these test tests look
1: for, that's right. And one of the benefits there, unlike PCR, these tests actually only turn positive if somebody is infectious. So they won't turn positive if somebody was infected two months ago and still has lingering RNA in their
3: nose yeah and so um, you said that that the PCR has like a 30day span but you, you might be only infectious for five of those days so PCR is wildly unuseful that's that's part of this right
1: uh, I don't want to I don't want oh, well, okay, to forget useful,
3: that but, but I mean the 30 and five that's what I wanted to focus on right yeah the, like can it can, the, it can pick up when you're not infectious is the point.
1: That's exactly right. So
3: if we. Right, right. Okay. uh, And then, and then hold on. And then, so um, would any, why not, like, would companies be involved in this or the government? You think the government should make the uh, plans?
1: I think companies absolutely can, um, can get involved. Um, But, you know, companies don't have, uh, we need a, we need a fairly comprehensive plan to move forward. I think the federal government, if it wants to, it can work with the companies to do it. And it can help fund them to, say, build up their capacity. Okay.
3: And just real quick, because of the limited time, you're using the concept of herd immunity in here, doubling the effect from 100 to 200 million. I don't get that at all, because herd immunity means you've been infected and therefore, you know, so on and so forth. Uh So could you just explain that a little bit more, like what that means, that Mm -hmm. concept of herd immunity expanding from 100 to 200 million? Thanks.
1: So that's what I said was herd effects. And so I'll, I'll okay. explain really quickly. herd immunity, the reason it works, so you've probably heard that vaccines, if you, you only need to vaccinate say 50% of the community for this virus to get the outbreaks to completely subside in the whole of the community. And that's because, uh, that's because of herd immunity. If, you, if on average, everyone infects say 1.5 additional people, and you get 50% of people to no longer be infecting other people, then the average at the whole community level brings that R value below one. So these rapid right. tests, if you had 50% of people using them, uh, then you know, if I get infected um, and I'm not using a test, maybe I go out and infect two additional people. But if I am using a rapid test, maybe I don't go out and I don't infect anyone, but maybe my neighbor isn't using the rapid test and they do go and infect two, then on average, we've infected one person. And if you do that across the whole of the community, you get that number below one on average, and that's the death knell of of an outbreak. That's what causes outbreaks to fall. So herd um, herd immunity is the most famous form of a herd effect, but we can actually drive herd effects without having the immune response be the reason we don't create onward transmission we can have knowledge and a test be the reason we don't create onward transmission, and yeah, that's so exactly ba- what we did with HIV.
3: So basically, you're saying you you you, you shut down half the, you shut down enough people to create herd effects, is what you're saying. You close them down by keeping them in, keeping them in quarantine. Um, so so this is a really simple idea, um, and it seems like it could be effective. Why why isn't why aren't we doing this? Like, well, what's it, going on? It, other than being anti-Trump, that's fine. I, you know, I, I'm not disagreeing with that, but any other reasons why we're not doing this? I,
1: I mean, you know, I brought the, I, I, I created this plan with, a, you know, our research really led to this whole plan. Um, and that's getting, pub- you know, it's been in a preprint since May or June or something. And, and now it's, it's getting published, um, soon. And, um, and at the time it got an amazing amount of traction and, and a lot of people were engaged. It was in the front of The New York Times, The Atlantic, you know everything, and Senators and governors were very, very interested. Um, I think what happened was it does cost maybe five billion dollars or 10 billion dollars. You know it maybe could cost three billion just to get started, but no state is really at a position in a position to appropriate those funds from their own purse. And we just didn't see. I know that there were people in Congress and senators who were very interested in trying to push it, but it just never made it, never made it to the top of the of the um, uh, of the priority list. And um, and I think it just kind of it became sort of uh, just just never really went anywhere, um, despite you know hundreds of hours of conversations. I think it can, and and what I'm trying to do now is reinvigorate the idea because we tr- we don't have vaccines. We have, there's there's not another option as far as I'm concerned that really could be as powerful as these. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm really trying to say that right now, I mean, right now is really when we need to act on this. There There's no time like the present and we can do this. We have, you know, new funding lines are coming about. Like we can push on it now that this election is over or soon to be over. Um, this is, this is exactly, you know, we need to do this right now. There's no excuse as a, as a country not to. Uh, we saw, you know, there's fears that vaccines could lose, a, you know, small mutations in the virus could render the vaccines useless. I don't subscribe to that. I think that we need a lot more research before, but certainly, you know, anything, any number of things could go wrong with vaccines. This is a known quantity. This we know how these tests work. There's not a lot of risk. There's not a lot of uncertainty. This is a tool we could do right now if we just start building these now. I don't know why nobody has really taken the charge in Congress. And I do believe that it is, um, that it is reflective of, of, of a, a haphazard and strategic list response so far for this virus.
3: OK, great. I'm done. Uh, just uh, I don't know how you got rapidtest.org as a URL, but kudos to you. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Thank you.
1: Sure.
0: Right, Dr. Minna, it looks like that's our last question for today. Do you have anything you'd like to say before we head out?
1: Um, I don't think so. I think that's, uh, that's it for right now.
0: This concludes the November 6th press conference.